Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 18 this evening, if you'll join me there. And again, these chapters that we're looking at now here in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, we looked at last time, 18, 19. These are a few chapters we find where basically God through Moses now is giving to uh, the children of Israel as they're preparing to enter into the promised land here. Really instruction specifically regarding civil affairs. Uh, He's addressing, as we saw last time, uh, judicial matters. He gave instructions to those who would serve as as judges in the land to uh, basically uh, operate in a way that would be ethical and and just and that they wouldn't be taken by partiality or bribes, that they would give just judgment to the cases and the matters that they would hear. He addressed not only judges, but then the issue of kings and how there would come a time where they would long for a king like the other nations around them. And God explained to them when they did have kings, uh, how the kings were to handle themselves, how they were to conduct their affairs that they weren't to multiply horses or wives or gold and silver their trust was not to be and the idea their you know military strength their trust was not to be in their wealth or their resources but their trust was to be in God and how that king was to not just be someone who was talented and charismatic but someone who was to be a man of character above all else in fact you remember that very unique uh, instruction or qualification uh, that the king had to observe when he came to the place of his throne we looked at at the end of chapter 7 where it was the requirement, if you would, sort of the first act of office for a king when he came to the throne was that he actually had to make his own handwritten copy of the word of God. And that became his personal copy to read all the days of his life so that his heart would be in a right place, that he would remain humble and usable, that he would have a healthy fear of God in the way that he would provide his leadership over the people in the land. And again, that God was concerned about the character of the king way more than anything else, that that leader would be a a man of character even more than charisma or talent or experience or anything else. Well, as we come to chapter 18 now, we've dealt with judges and kings, and now chapter 18 begins to deal with priests and prophets, we'll see. And then as we get into chapter 19, again, more judicial things being discussed there in regards to how they were to handle some civil affairs and when offenses and so forth would happen. So look with me, beginning in the 18th chapter, God here says the priests and the Levites. And again, remember, that was where the priests were drawn from, from the tribe of Levi. So uh, you could be a, a uh, Levite and not necessarily be a priest But you could not be a priest and not be a Levite. Again, the the Levites were the tribe from which the priests came, the line of uh, Aaron's family, ultimately the line of the high priest. So he says, from the tribe of Levi, they shall have, and we've seen these things before back in Leviticus and Numbers, that the Levites were not to have any inheritance, that is land inheritance, with the rest of the tribes of Israel, uh, as land will be allotted in the time of Joshua's days. Uh, It would be a portion, different uh, segments of the land would be given by lot to the different tribal territories, but the one tribe, Levi, was not to receive a land inheritance that would perpetuate through the family and the reason why was because they were the tribe that God set apart to be fully dedicated to the service of the Lord 
and therefore because of that they did not need a large tract of land to have for their family and agrarian purposes uh, because it says here that they were to eat or the ideas be supplied from the offerings of the Lord made by fire verse 1 in this portion so as the people brought their offerings that would be in a sense what supplied them and sustained them they got a portion as we've talked about many times before in depth of the offerings that were brought to the tabernacle and the temple at the altar where the people of God would come with their offerings of worship verse 2 therefore they shall have no inheritance among their brethren the Lord is their inheritance as he said to them. So again, they didn't get tracts of land. They did get, if you remember, 48 different cities that they were uh, dispersed in throughout the land of Israel. And the reason for that is God wanted the Levites to be scattered, in a sense, throughout the land in these different Levitical cities so that they could have an influence spiritually in all the different areas of Israel. So there were some Levite cities in all the different 12 tribes when they were allotted and the Levites were to represent uh, the word of God. They were to teach the people the word of God and the ways of God. So they received these cities, but other than that, no inheritance of land because God was their inheritance and ultimately the Lord who supplied for them directly. And we see how that actually happens here mentioned in verse 3. God says, and this shall be, notice, the priests due. So he says this is what is due. There is something due to the priest. This shall be the priests due from the people. That is the people of Israel, the congregation as they would come and worship. This was to be the due from the people. From those who offer a sacrifice, whether again it's a bull, or a sheep they shall give to the priest notice this was the portion the shoulder the cheeks and the stomach the first fruit of your grain and your new wine and your oil and the first of the fleece of your sheep you shall give him verse 5 the reason God says for the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So again, because of what God determined, verse 5, that God had chosen them for this specific purpose, they were to live a life different than others, set apart. Uh, their main function primarily is that they were to give themselves to the work of the sanctuary member, the tabernacle, and then ultimately the temple physically. Remember, there were the three different families, the, you know, the, the, the Merorites and the Kohathites and uh, the, the, those of the Girgashites, and they were to give themselves as the three sons to the different aspects of setting up the tabernacle and tearing it down and managing the different aspects of the sanctuary and the worship life. And then, of course, the priests were to tend to the altar and to the lampstand and the table of showbread and taking care of the offerings as the people brought them. And because they were to be fully dedicated to that, God implemented a way whereby they would be able to be sustained uh, for their needs and their family in such a way that they could give themselves fully to those things and not be preoccupied with working the land and having to figure out how to manage two things to where they could not give themselves fully to the adequate uh, amount of investment to the worship life of the people so that the worship and spiritual life of the nation didn't struggle. So God says because of that, because they are to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, God says here, verse 3 and 4, this is what is due from the people 
as the worshipers of God, as they would bring their offerings to the house of God, a portion of that was to be given as it was given to God with the understanding that a part of that was to be then rendered to them as sort of remuneration uh, to supply them for their spiritual work and their labor. And again, we see this same kind of principle carried out in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle picks up on the same idea in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says something very similar. He says this there. He says, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, and he says, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does the law say the same also? For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then Paul says, from the Old Testament, was it really oxen that God was concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt that it is written, he who plows should plow in hope, he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. And he says, if we've sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And then Paul ultimately says this, reflecting back, I believe, on this passage. He says, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Exactly what we have described here. And then Paul, using this Old Testament principle, says, even so, the Lord has now commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So again, Paul uses this Old Testament scriptural principle as a reinforcement for the New Testament instruction that God says that those who minister in the things of the gospel now and minister the word of God and serve in those capacities in the spiritual temple of taking care of God's people and God's house, that that same principle would carry itself over from a New Testament perspective. So again, just beautiful to see how, again, the Old Testament reinforcing the New Testament. And as we become familiar with both, we see that the common thread of how we serve a God who changes not and how God carries these things through and he sees the benefit of these things to a healthy established spiritual life for his people to have the ultimate benefit. Then goes on to tell us there in verse 6, so if a Levite, now not specifically a priest, but a Levite comes from any of your gates, again, the different gates of the cities where they may be located, from where he dwells among all Israel, and he comes, notice, with the desire of his mind to the place which the Lord chooses. Now, ultimately, that would be Jerusalem, the permanent location where the temple would be set up. Then, he says, he may serve in the name of the Lord as God, as all his brethren, the Levites do, who stand there before the Lord, and they shall have equal portions, the idea is equal supply to eat, besides, also, he says, what comes from the sale of his inheritance. So what God here is doing is putting forth an instruction and an allowance that as the Levites served in the different cities where they were at, handling their spiritual functions there, teaching the word of God, helping people understand and judge situations by looking to the law and then applying it to different matters of family affairs and civil life and social life. He says, if one of the Levites begins to have a desire within himself to say, you know, I really want to be in the center of all that God's doing, and I have a heart to want to go 
where the tabernacle is, where the temple of the Lord is, and to give myself fully to the work of the Lord. And he says, if that desire arises in the heart of one of the Levites, again, he didn't have to do that. But if it was something that came upon his heart that he says, I want to render myself completely over to the service of the Lord and be there full time, then what he was able to do, God says, we notice there from verse 8, is uh, he was able to basically sell off a, a, a portion of their their property that they had, the sale of his inheritance, the, the small tract of territory that they had, and to take the, the resources from the sale of that house or whatever, say so forth, and to go there and to serve in the center of the life of worship. And God said if they do that, they were to be equally supplied and cared for. And again, just God reinforcing how, you know, when God sends us and when God calls us to some form of service in the same way they may feel led to answer that call to go, you know, the Bible is so clear to us that when God guides, God provides. And when God leads us to do something, whether it's a missionary to go and serve overseas or whether it's somebody to step into some form of ministry capacity, when the Lord is genuinely directing and leading us to serve him, we can rest assured that he will supply us to do the things that he indeed has called us to do. If he's called us to do it and it's genuinely his call, then we can trust that he's going to take care of us and he's going to supply us what we need to take that step. Again, remember in the New Testament, Peter on one occasion and, and some of the disciples begin to question and say, Lord, you know, we've left all to follow you. you know, we've left our houses and our families and our fields. And Lord, we've left all to follow you. Jesus says, listen, no one who has left houses or fields or, or families or, you know, is not going to have to worry about having just as much in this life and in the age to come. And again, just assuring that at times, you know, God may shift our lives. He may move us in different directions. Sometimes the Lord uproots us and puts us from here to there. But if the Lord is in it and the Lord is leading, we can trust as we take that step of faith, Lord, you're going to take care of me. You're going to supply me. If I'm following your leading and I'm moving in the direction that you've guided me to go in, and what a wonderful thing to realize that whenever you step out to serve the Lord in any capacity, you never have to fear if you're going to lack the adequate resources because the call of God is the enabling of God. And whether it's the spiritual enablement or the financial support or what is necessary, God always comes through. He meets our needs. And here he speaks of how if the Levite wanted to go to Jerusalem, they could sell their property, keep the, the funds from that as well as that they were to be equally supplied portions of what the others were receiving there as verse 8 describes. Now, verse 9 begins to come to a section where God addresses here again some of the things that he did not desire to be a part of the lives of his people and a part of their not only spiritual lives, but as well their civil and their social lives as he begins to deal with prophetic things and a genuine prophet, he first addresses the danger of false prophets and hearing false direction and seeking false guidance that would be very, very destructive to them. Again, we, we want to draw your attention, as I said last week when we were together, take note of these strong words because God uses at times very strong language. And when God uses strong language, I don't think we should just gloss over that. I think we should realize if God chose to use strong language, he used it for an intended purpose. Uh, and we should say, okay, Lord, you feel very strongly about that. 
And so maybe I should feel quite honestly very strongly about that as well. And look what happens here in verse 9. He says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn. So he says, don't be curious about, don't study, don't say, let me check into this. Let me see, this looks interesting, I'm curious. You shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Now again, the word abomination is a term that speaks of being disgusting. It's another term for detestable. God says, do not learn the detestable ways of these people. Do not learn the disgusting ways of these people. So what does God consider? What ways does God consider detestable, disgusting, that are an abomination to God? Well, look what he says, verse 10, strong language. The, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. So there's one thing, speaks of child sacrifice. And this was a common practice, as we've talked about before, among the Canaanite people in the land. It was a very, very common thing for them to be engaged in child sacrifice in the worship of their god Molech, we've talked about before. A little you know, brazen statue that they would set in the fire with extended arms, with hands tilted upwards, and as they would heat it up molten hot, then then as a form of sacrificing to the god Molech, which was the god of pleasure, they would literally take their infant children, and after that little statue was red hot, molten hot, they would literally place their babies onto that statue and literally as a way sacrifice the fruit of their womb to the god Molech as that child was burned alive as they were beating upon drums and dancing and screaming and sort of a, a heightened frenzy of course getting all worked up and, and the purpose of that was that as they gave the, the fruit of their offspring to Molech then, then the god Molech would in a sense increase their pleasure and give to them a more pleasurable wonderful enjoyable experience so in a sense you know we look at that and we think man that sounds you know horrific that for you know sake of convenience or pleasure to somehow enrich their own life they would sacrifice the life of a child they would sacrifice the life of a child to somehow just make their life better but yet the reality is as though we may think we do it in a little more of a, a dignified way today's day and age you know much the same goes on in our culture with abortion today uh, you know we may burn the child not with a hot molten statue but with saline solutions and other ways but much the same aspect of what was happening here in, among the Canaanite people goes on in today's culture where people, for the sake of, you know, it's not convenient to have the life of that child because it may interrupt the pleasure or convenience of perhaps the parents who conceived that child and so it's an unwanted pregnancy and that would interrupt their pleasure. So for their own pleasure or greater convenience, they sacrifice the life of that child for the enhancement of their own pleasure or convenience because that child would be an inconvenience somehow. It's a very sad and tragic thing. It's a blight on any culture. And it was something in this day and age that, again, because God values life. God values life highly. And we don't say that in any way to condemn anyone, even in this room this evening, in regards to if that was something that was a part of your past. You know, it's a painful, horrible thing. 
And the tragedy of it is it has just as much pain and scarring upon the the man and the woman who ultimately do that, the, the, the psychological remembrance of that and the, the trauma and the damage of that, that was one of the things God hates too because it plagues a person's confidence. And I think only in Jesus Christ when you come to know his forgiveness and you realize that the shed blood of Jesus can forgive that and can cleanse that and can assure you that, listen, that life lost on this earth has been preserved in glory and there is a wonderful reunion that is available and I think it's only through Christ that a person can be relieved of the guilt of something traumatic like that. But nonetheless, we should never diminish or begin to get as a culture so you know, anesthetized and so desensitized to the, the, the commonness of it and the frequency of it to where just like as they would beat on their drums and get into a heightened frenzy and scream so they would not hear the piercing scream of that child, that infant as it went on there, that we would never drown out the reality because it's so common that we as Christians begin to just, well, it's just, it's just a part of what happens. And that we would begin to lose a sense of sensitivity that, no, this is a horrible thing. This is murder. This is taking the life of, of, of an innocent child that has no voice and that we would never begin to sort of diminish the, 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 the tragedy that it really is. Again, this is one of the things that God states is an abomination. It's detestable to him when a people do this. It brings great disgust to the heart of God who genuinely wants us to value and esteem the sanctity of life. So he says this is one of the things that should not be found among them that would be detestable. And then he goes on, verse 10, to say, or other detestable practices, one who practices, take notice of the list now, God encompasses everything, one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, the idea is looking for signs in different things, or a sorcerer, those who are involved in sorcery, or one who conjures up spells, potions and charming and so forth, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For verse 12, look at this. All who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God driving out, he says, these people before you. Again, this was a very common practice among the Canaanite people. They were very interested in spiritual things, but they were interested in all the wrong things. And the means they were going by to get in touch with the spirit realm was very dark. It was very dark. I mean, you just look at the list there. I mean, it about covers anything that you can encompass. Witchcraft, soothsaying, interpreting omens, sorcery, conjuring spells, mediums, spiritists, one who calls up and contacts the dead and tries to get direction from among the realm of the dead. Again, and, and look at our culture today, ladies and gentlemen, we, and we think, well, that's not, that's not ancient. There are, look at statistics, there are millions of people, even in the United States of America today, who are involved in Wicca and witchcraft as a form of their religion in our own culture. 
people are into, are they not? You know, tarot cards and palm readers. You go up on our own boardwalks, you know, mediums and palm readers. They're going to read your palm and tell you something about, you know, giving direction for your life and, you know, astrology and, and reading horoscopes and Ouija boards and all these things that, again, so many times we want to even jokingly sometimes act like, oh, yeah, what's, what's the big deal? And all, listen, it is a big deal. Because the powers of darkness and demonic things are very real. And they're very dangerous and destructive. And God says, you should not be looking at these things. You should not be practicing these things, playing with these things, curious about learning any of these things. You should stay as far away from those things as you can. Because God says those are not the means of seeking direction for your life. Why, why, would you, why would you need to seek direction from any of those things when you know the living God who is the beginning and the end? Why would you want to trust you know, the arrangement of tea leaves or something? You know, or, or, well, what does the horoscope say? Or why don't we see if we can get in touch with some dead spirit and see if from the dead... If the spirit's dead, how does he know what's going on in your life? Why would you want to contact a dead spirit about how to live your life when that spirit's dead? But this was things that the people were involved in and they were very dark, very dark, very destructive. Again, you know, I look at some of these things and I'm not one to you know, harp on certain things, but this is one of the reasons why personally I'm not, real, I'm not real crazy about any participation in something like Halloween because it smacks of all these things. I'm not very interested in these movies and shows that deal with sorcery and witchcraft. Well, it's white witches. A witch is a witch. I don't care if it's a white witch, green witch, sandwich. A witch is a witch. I don't want anything to do with it. And I think that as Christians, we need to realize, what's God's heart on the matter? Well, I think God's heart on the matter here is pretty strongly stated. God says there in verse 12, spiritists, mediums, witchcraft, sorcery, soothsaying, all these, he says, all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of those abominations, God says, that's one of the reasons I'm driving these people out of the land. Is This is one of the personal reasons that my judgment and wrath is coming upon that territory. So why would you want to participate in those things? Now, from a New Testament perspective, Paul kind of brings a similar idea where he says to us, why would we indulge as Christians in some of the sins that are bringing the very wrath of God upon our planet one day? We should stay away from those things. Paul says this in Colossians 3, it came to mind. He said, therefore, as Christians, put to death your members which are of the earth, fornication, sex in any way outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Sexual immorality in any form, fornication, uncleanness, perversion, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And Paul gives this list there in Colossians 3. And then he says this, because of these things, those sins, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So what's he saying to us as Christians? Listen, you don't inherit a land, but you inherit a spiritual life, and your spiritual life should cause you to live different than everybody else on the earth. We should, as Christians, not be participating in the same sins people in the world are. We should be living distinctively different because we should be grieved saying, it's all those things and all those sins that's bringing the wrath of God upon this planet. So why do I want to contribute to that? 
I don't want to further poke God in the eye when his righteous judgment is already going to come upon those things. So we want to refrain from those things rather than become guilty of participating in them. He says, verse 13, they're going on. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Again, the word blameless doesn't mean perfect. It literally just means without guilt, that you can't be blamed for doing certain things, that you're not participating in a way where somebody could blame you and say, yeah, you're doing that too. So he says, you know, keep your account clear, steer away from those things. Verse 14 again, for these nations which you will dispossess, here again, God says it, they listened to soothsayers and diviners. This was how they sought their guidance through soothsayers through diviners seeking signs and omens. But as for you, the children of God, as for you, God tells Israel, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. What's he saying? God's saying, you were not appointed to receive guidance the same way they do. You were appointed to something different. You know, that's not how they were to receive guidance. They were to receive guidance from God, directly from God. Yes, there was a spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. That was who they were to receive their guidance from. So God's saying, you have no need to use the, the methods of those who seek guidance from tarot cards and sorcery and sooths. You don't need that stuff. Why, again, why would you, God's saying, sink to the level to go and seek that stuff when you can seek the living God who can give you clarity and direction and speak to you directly? He then says, verse 15, the Lord your God, look what he says, will raise up for you a prophet, Moses says, like me. Now, this is interesting, this 18th chapter, how God gives this prophecy and prediction. And of course, he's speaking of Christ, how Christ would be a prophet like unto Moses, that Moses was a type of Christ in many ways. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your midst. Again, Jesus came from the nation of Israel among the people of the Jews. From your brethren and him, notice it's capitalized, it should be anyway because it's speaking of Jesus, him you shall hear according to all your desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die and the Lord said to me, Moses says, what they've spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So God clearly reminds them of how there would be a prophet to come that would be, notice, like Moses. And then God makes reference here in verse 16 to 17 to that time, remember, where the people became so terrified of the presence of God, they said, Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore because if, we, if he speaks to us anymore, we're going to die. So let God talk to you and then you tell us what God says. And, and at that point, the idea there was the acknowledgement of Moses, will you serve as a mediator? And God would speak what? Directly to Moses as a man speaks unto a friend, the Bible tells us. And then Moses would speak to the people as the mediator on God's behalf. So what was Moses to the people? Think about it, to the Jews. Moses was a deliverer and he was a mediator. He was a deliverer and a mediator. And now God says, I'm going to raise up a prophet 
for the people just like you, Moses, someone who will be a mediator and a deliverer. Ultimately, what Jesus would become. Jesus would become the Savior, not from Egypt and from slavery under bricks and mortar, but Jesus would become the Savior to save us out of the world and the judgment of the world and the world system and to save us from the slavery of sin. And then he would become the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, on our behalf. And Jesus would as well be that mediator whereby we would hear directly from God, how? Through Jesus. That Jesus would speak to us as God, as the representative of God, and he would speak directly to us the very words of God. And so he says here, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren and put, verse 18, my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command them. You know, and we see this throughout the New Testament. You'll notice there are a couple different occasions where Again, even in the days of John the Baptist, when they were trying to inquire, remember John 1, who are you? Are you Jeremiah? No, I'm not Jeremiah. Are, are, are you one of, the, one of the prophets? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And, and, and this is what they were referring to. In the same way, in the days of Jesus, when Jesus said, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say that you were the prophet, and then, of course, that was when Peter said, but we know you, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. But again, there's this reference because there was this understanding that not just that God would send prophets, but a prophet, this, this prophetic voice that would speak like Moses did, that would be like unto Moses. It was a prophecy of the Messiah, of the coming one that they were looking for. And Jesus would make allusion to this on occasion. Jesus said in John chapter 12, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he says, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day for I have not spoken on my authority, but the father who sent me gave me command what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, Jesus said, just as the Father told me, so I speak. So Jesus would say this repeatedly. He said, what I'm saying to you are not my words. These are the words of the Father in heaven. And, and, and so this is what's being described here. And Jesus would make allusion to it. And because Jesus was speaking the very words of God, notice because of that, verse 20 says, excuse me, verse 19 says, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So they would be accountable, accountable to the words of Jesus. Why? Because the words of Jesus were the words of God. So to reject the words of Jesus would be to reject the words of God. And therefore, there would be great accountability. God would require it of them because of who it was that was speaking. Verse 20 says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, so this would be a false prophet, the idea here is, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, which means there will be those who are self-appointed prophets, false teachers, false prophets, those who would say, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord told me to say this, or God's given me a message and they're speaking presumptuously, 
though they may be claiming the name of the Lord, but God has not sent them. And he says, whoever does this, he says, presumes to speak in my name, which I've not commanded to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So again, it was a, it was a capital crime. It was the death penalty to be a false prophet in that day in Israel. Verse 21, if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How can we tell if somebody's a false prophet, if it's not really God who's spoken through them? God answers pretty simply. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or it doesn't come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken that prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. In other words, not intimidated just because they claim to be a prophet. So God says, this is how you can know if someone's a false prophet. If what they say does not have 100% accuracy, they're not a prophet of God. So it's, it's pretty exclusive if you want to claim to be a prophet of God sent by God because here's the thing, God changes not the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. So for somebody to claim to be a prophet and, and, and then to be accurate 50% of the time, God says they're not a prophet of God. Listen, you can flip a coin and be accurate 50% of the time. And I think this is very important because pay attention to certain pseudo-Christian cults that exist that claim to operate in the name of Jesus and claim to be prophets or have prophets and pay attention if they're genuine prophets then why have some of their prophecies failed? And they have prophesied things about the return of the Lord or prophesied things and then those things don't come to pass. As soon as that happens it discredits everything about them. They're false prophets. It does not matter what authority they try and act that they have. God says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be intimidated by them because someone who genuinely speaks the word of the Lord in a prophetic sense, again, every prophecy that God has made comes to pass. It's fulfilled. God has a 100% accuracy. That's the thing that sets God apart from any false prophet. So again, just a simple evaluation. God says if they say something and it doesn't happen, the first time it fails, it discredits them. It discredits them as being a prophet of the Lord in that sense. Verse 1 of chapter 19 says, And when the Lord your God has cut off the nations of the land, the Lord your God's giving you to dispossess them and to dwell in their cities and their houses. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And you shall prepare roads for yourselves and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there that he may live, whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, so it wasn't premeditated murder because of hatred in your heart, as when a man goes to the woods, here's an example, verse 5, with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings the stroke with the axe to cut down a tree, and accidentally the head slips off the handle and strikes his neighbor, boom, Fred's dead, we got a problem now, and he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live 
lest, verse 6, the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. So God here again, chapter 19, we saw this in Numbers chapter 35, in other locations, giving instruction regarding these cities of refuge. There were three on the eastern side of the Jordan, three on the western side. There were three in the land, three outside of the land. They were equally separated with sort of an equal distance from all different locations. And they were basically sanctuaries where people could flee to so that they could be protected until they were given a fair trial. Because granted, there may be times when somebody killed somebody with premeditated malice in their heart and hatred and they murdered someone but then there would be times where people were killed accidentally whether it was two guys that maybe they just got into a fight and you know somebody slugged somebody and he fell down and he banged his head on a rock what do you it was a premeditated intention in advance to kill somebody it was manslaughter or even a more unintentional case where you're out chopping down wood with your your friend to to work together and the axe head flies off and it's just you and him out there and the axe head hits him in the head and it was completely unintentional and you're innocent. But now all of a sudden you've got a murder on your hands and until a fair trial could be carried out, God gave this way whereby someone could flee to one of these cities of refuge and have sanctuary and safety and be protected there by the elders of the city until a fair trial could be sort of worked out and you could prove your innocence. And of course, we've talked about this before. And the reason why is they didn't have a police department and, and, and an organized uh, way in that day in judicial systems. So because of that, a lot of times what was carried out in those Eastern cultures is the Goel or the Avenger of Blood described there in verse 6 is a family member would basically go and, and pursue you and would the idea was if you killed their relative they would execute judgment upon you and put you to death and so that this didn't happen necessarily God created a way so that there could be a time for fair trial and that man didn't just respond in his own anger in situations where people were innocent and it was unnecessary to put somebody to death because it wasn't the case of murder. And, and we've talked about this before. So here God's giving instruction regarding that. And, and again, how these things are a beautiful picture of the city of refuge we've talked about before of how Christ is our refuge and whether we sin intentionally or unintentionally that we can flee to Christ and find refuge in Christ and how it's a picture of those things. But what's being described here in the 19th chapter of Deuteronomy, a, a little additional information is verse 3 is describing how they were noticed to prepare the roads and to divide the land into equal parts. The idea there was so that these territories were easily accessible. So that if one of these instances happened, God was saying, make sure these cities of refuge are very easily accessible, that they're clearly marked out. People know how to find them and they can find them easily and, and, and they're very well marked and people are well informed so that they can get to those locations as easy as possible when something like this happens. And of course, I think this is just a reminder. It said in, in that day historically in Israel that any crossroad you came to had a very clear sign at a crossroads if you were trying to flee city of refuge that way that you knew easily how to get there. And I think this just speaks to the reminder of how it's the heart of God that his people make refuge 
as easily accessible for people as possible. That we as God's people would make pointing to how to get to the refuge, Jesus Christ, as easy for people as possible. That it wouldn't be complicated. In the same way, God didn't want them to show up to a cross. Where's the city of refuge? Where's the city of refuge? Can somebody tell me how to get to the city? Of God said, no, I want it to be clearly marked. I want it to be prepared and easy so they can easily know, okay, very simple. This is where I go. This is how I get there. It's clear as a bell. And I think God wants us as Christians to make how to find refuge in Christ as simple and easy for people as possible. That we don't complicate the gospel message, that we make it very understandable and we make it very accessible. That people can say, oh, okay, no time need be lost. That's how you find refuge from your sin. That's how you find deliverance from your mistake. That's how you find safety when you've caused a problem. That's the way to go about it. And here God is giving them clear instruction, equal distances, prepare the roads, make it as easy as possible for them to get there. He then says, verse 8, Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you, he says, the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So if their land expanded to all the territory they could have inherited, then they would actually add an additional three cities which would be equal nine cities, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Verse 11, take notice, but, this is the distinction, if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of that city shall send and bring from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die because it was cold-blooded murder. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. Again, murder was a capital crime. It was the death penalty. And so God says, listen, if when the facts are laid out and things are checked into, it was clear this wasn't an unintentional death. This wasn't manslaughter. This was direct intentional murder. Then God says you're, you're to render the proper judgment or punishment that is due. Again, the, the justice, the, the crime, and the penalty were to meet together so they were to turn over someone if they were guilty of doing such things. You shall not remove, verse 14, God says, your neighbor's landmark which men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So they would plot out their land parcels with landmarks. And so God says, look, don't go out and, and at night try and expand your territory by taking your neighbor's stones and moving a few feet over to make your territory a little bit bigger. <laughs> it's interesting. We look at this. It just shows you that God knows humanity. Because people, God knew people would do that. You sneak out at night. Man, I could use another acre. And I bet if every night I moved the stones of the boundary line a foot a night, he'd never notice. And in a year, I could have a whole other acre. You know, and he's got, so, yes, so God, God just, God's, that's theft. That's stealing. And why was it wrong above all else? I'll tell you why it was wrong above all else. Because God gave them that territory. So it wasn't just robbing them. 
God says, you're robbing me. I gave them that tract of land. That was the lot that I gave to them. So God says, don't you encroach on a boundary that I set. I set that boundary. And God says, because I set that boundary, don't mess with it. Don't mess with the ancient landmark. And look, I think this is important because sometimes we need to be careful in our selfishness and our foolishness that we respect the boundaries that God sets. God sets boundaries. Maybe they're boundaries at work. Maybe they're boundaries domestically, boundaries of marriage, boundaries of ministry, boundaries of families. Listen, when there are boundaries, we need to respect those boundaries. And we should honor those boundaries. And we shouldn't, for our own selfish purposes, try and push the boundary, if you understand what I'm saying, and try and gradually move the boundary. We should respect those things. Again, same thing morally, spiritually. This is the deterioration of what we're doing to our nation. We're not respecting the ancient landmarks. We're tearing down walls and boundaries without asking the question, why were those boundaries set originally? And one of the greatest mistakes a society, a culture can make is to begin to tear down walls and to tear down boundaries and to move boundaries morally, spiritually, in all these ways without anyone ever stopping to ask the sensible question, why was that boundary put there originally? Why did we originally say this would be morally wrong? This would destroy the fabric of the morality of a nation. And instead, for a people wanting to serve their own personal preference and pleasures and indulge themselves, people are just pushing past boundaries and everybody's letting them do it. And it's what leads to the deterioration of a nation. So God says here, be careful of this. Again, he knows our propensity. He knows that we're rebels at heart. And listen, God has set boundaries for us for reasons. We need to let God determine that. God knows what's best. God's given me boundaries in my life. I want to live in those boundaries. I want to honor those boundaries morally, spiritually, in my family, in my marriage. God's given you boundaries in your life. You know what? Just respect the boundaries. Honor those boundaries. And don't push past those places and begin to get yourself where you ultimately shouldn't be. Well, we need to stop there for this evening for sake of time. Let's stand together. Let's pray.